The great English poet, playwright, and actor William Shakespeare had, during his lifetime, produced 39 plays, which are widely regarded as being among the greatest in the English language and are continually performed around the world, translated into every major living language. In recent years, modern criticism has labeled some of these plays problem plays that elude easy categorization or perhaps purposely break generic conventions, and has introduced the term romances for what scholars believe to be his later comedies. What is so enigmatic about these later plays? Thanks for tuning in to the Global Novel. I'm Claire Hennessy. Today, the distinguished American scholar and professor of English, Dr. Seth Lair, is going to walk us through the major transitions of Shakespeare's plays, as well as how to appreciate the aestheticism demonstrated in his later plays. Dr. Seth Lair specializes in historical analysis of the English language, and in addition to critical analysis of the works of several authors, particularly Geoffrey Chaucer. He is distinguished professor emeritus of literature at the University of California, San Diego, where he served as the dean of arts and humanities from 2009 to 2014. Dr. Lair previously held the Avalon Foundation professorship in humanities at Stanford University and won 2010 Truman Capote Award for literary criticism and the 2009 National Book Critics Circle Award in criticism for children's literature: A Reader's History from Aesop to Harry Potter. Welcome, Seth. It's a, such a great honor and pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Claire. It really is great to talk. Really appreciate.、It. Well, shall we begin with the playwright? What part of Shakespeare's life do you think, especially his education and literary heritage, played an important role in his plays in general? Well, it's a wonderful place to begin, and as many of us know, and as many of your listeners no doubt know. Uh, Shakespeare's life is tantalizingly opaque. We know very little about what he was doing and when he was doing it. There's an enormous amount of speculation.、Uh, during his own lifetime,、uh, comments in the 1590s refer to Shakespeare famously as an upstart crow.、Uh, they talk about him as ambitious. Uh, they talk about his performances.、Um, we know from his publications that his first publications were long、uh, mythological poems,、uh, Venus and Adonis and Lucrece, that were dedicated to aristocratic patrons. And we know something of his life from the material in the famous First Folio, that collection of his plays that came out seven years after his death. But many、uh, biographers of Shakespeare, most famously, I think uh, uh, Stephen Greenblatt in his great book *Will and the World*, usually work by conjecture. You know, you read a book like that, and it's Shakespeare must have thought, or how could he not have believed? And what I like to do with Shakespeare's life is think of it less in terms of the things he may have done, and more in terms of the things he may have read. It's very clear from Shakespeare's plays that he's a great reader. Whatever his level of formal education,、uh, he clearly knew the canon of classical literature. He was deeply engaged with the work of his contemporaries, in particular、uh, Marlowe, Kidd, Ben Jonson, and he clearly understood the basic techniques of rhetoric. That is of linguistic performance and argument 
as they were taught in the schools. So when we ask questions about the life, I'm very interested in the books. And I say that also because I'm the kind of person who, if you ask me, tell me something about your life, I'd tell you the books I'd read rather than the things I did. So I personally believe that when we want to know about Shakespeare, it's through these literary allusions, quotations, and references, and that while we may speculate greatly about what he did or who he knew or why he left the theater uh, uh, in, in the 16-teens and returned to Stratford, these are tantalizing things to us. I want to say one thing, though, in response to this question, and that is that for many, many years, it's been uh, fashionably challenging to question Shakespeare's authorship, to say Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare, or how could the son of a glove maker have attained this level of sophistication, or Shakespeare never traveled to Italy, and yet his descriptions of aspects of Italy in his plays seem wildly accurate for someone. And I want to stress that these are conjectures that developed in the 19th century. They're class-based. They're arguments that have no basis in historical Mm -hmm documentation. My friend and colleague at Columbia University, James Shapiro, has written eloquently on the Shakespeare biography controversies. And I think it's very important that we understand that um, questioning Shakespeare's authorship needs to be done in a very careful way. It's absolutely true that Shakespeare was a great collaborator. It's absolutely true that his earliest plays, in particular the Henry VI plays, were probably written in collaboration with others. And it is absolutely clear that his very, very last plays, Pericles and The Two Noble Kinsmen, and possibly parts of Henry VIII, were also written in collaboration with others. To say that Shakespeare is a collaborative playwright is different from saying that somebody other than Shakespeare is responsible for his verbal genius and his dramatic imagination. So I want to sort of lay that out at the very beginning as a way of framing our engagement with the human being and his literary productions. Right. What I think that was very helpful to clarify for our listeners, this controversy surrounding authorship. We also know that Ovid's Metamorphosis drastically influenced Shakespeare's later plays. So how did Shakespeare rework the Ovidian tropes and transcend Ovid's artistry? That's a wonderful question. You see, Ovid is one of the most important writers for the European Renaissance. Mm -hmm. Ovid is one of the earliest writers who is printed in the 1470s. He's one of the earliest writers translated into European languages. And his Metamorphoses, which is a collection of mythological tales, had a huge impact on English and European uh, narrative, drama, history, politics. Ovid was also the great advisor on love, his Art of Love, his book The Remedy of Love, his Amores. 
These are brilliant and, of course, at times phenomenally explicit works about sexuality and desire. I remember when I was a student trying to read Ovid's Art of Love and coming into an edition where the last sections were translated not into English, but into Italian, as if somehow uh, we, we, we just couldn't say in English the details of these things. So it's important to, to, to really think of Ovid as providing not just a source for Shakespeare and his contemporaries, but a model of a way in which an author can take myth and sexuality and make it immediately relevant to the world. So there are several key myths that Shakespeare and his contemporaries loved to recycle over and over again. The Pygmalion myth, the story of the man who creates a statue and falls in love with it, and it comes to life. This is a centerpiece of notions of art and representation. Many people see at the end of Shakespeare's very late play, The Winter's Tale, the image of a statue coming to life as a way of transforming this Pygmalion story. Another myth that was central to um, late 16th and early 17th century identity was the myth of King Midas. We know King Midas primarily because of his golden touch, but the real King Midas story that interested them was the story of how King Midas had a contest between Pan and Apollo, and he wanted to judge who was better. Pan, who played popular music on the Pan Pipes, and Apollo, who played rarefied, what we might call classical music, on the lyre. And they played for Midas, and Midas liked Pan better. And Apollo said, well, since you have the ears of an ass... I'm going to give you the ears of an ass. And so he gave Apollo, he gave Midas rather these enormous asses ears, which Midas then would wrap up in, uh, in a turban. And the only person who knew about them was his barber. And so, you know, there's a complicated story about this. Well, in Midsummer Night's Dream, there's, of course, the famous figure of Bottom. And Bottom is transformed into a man with an ass's head. And at which point he calls for music as the ass, I'm going to make a pun, as the asinine uh, a lover of the goddess Titania. And he says, let's hear the tongues and bones. In other words, let's hear the clanging sounds. Let's hear all this stuff, you see. And so it's a wonderful moment of saying, what does it mean for Midas to be on the throne? You see, Midas is a story of bad taste, but it's also a story of bad patronage. What does it mean to be a poet in a court of Midas? And let me give you one other example. You know, the way in which, of course, Midas is transformed into this hideous, ugly creature who cannot distinguish good and bad music. Well, in Shakespeare's Tempest, the figure of Caliban, who's the ugliest monster we've seen, the Tempest is full of allusions to Ovid, great quotations and uh, 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 asides. But one of the great moments, of course, is when Caliban talks about, in that famous speech, the isle is full of noises, twangling instruments, and how he would fall asleep and dream in these sounds and, 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 and cry to dream again. Caliban, the ugliest creature on the planet, has the most poetic lines. And so, it's a Midas-like moment. 
which is to say, how do we judge the literary? How do we judge poetic beauty? And why do we expect the ugly to be ugly? Why do we expect ugliness to be a punishment for bad literary taste? So there are many, many strains. I've just offered a couple of them here, but you know, the stories of Procne and Philomela, the story of Lucrece, uh, you know, uh, the story of Orpheus uh, uh, and, and his, his lyre. Shakespeare, many people recognize the mind of it, not just for mythic stories, but for representations of artistic figures, Pygmalion, Orpheus, Midas. Arachne, Apollo, creators, shapers, weavers of language, for whom Shakespeare could, through whom rather, Shakespeare could explore what it means to be a magician of the theater and an artist of the word. That is so enlightening. Well, unlike most authors who became recognized only posthumously, right? Shakespeare enjoyed his fame and success during his lifetime. I wonder if you could take us back to the moment when Shakespeare's plays were put on in famous theaters of London at the time. What did they really look like? Sure. Well, there are many aspects of that question. So let me try to tease out a few major strengths. The first Mm -hmm. is Shakespeare has a reputation. As I mentioned at the beginning of his career, it's a reputation of an upstart, a reputation of someone who is a a tiger's heart wrapped in an actor's hide. That's another great phrase. So the idea of Shakespeare as vaunting, as ambitious, as in himself a kind of figure of, um, of, of dramatic ambition, like many of his heroes. It's also true that Shakespeare was intimately involved in the mechanics of the theater. He acted. Um, He was a shareholder in a company. Uh, Mm -hmm. These companies, the King's Men, the the Lord Chamberlain's Men, they uh, performed. But the point that I want to stress for our listeners is that there are really two worlds to the Shakespearean theater. One of them we're very familiar with, and that is the world of the Globe Theater. That is, the theater that is an open-air, outdoor theater with tiers or strata, if you like, of seats that go up in price and go up in class, depending on where you're sitting. The so-called groundlings standing on the ground and the progressively wealthier aristocratic or literate or gentry as they move up. Secondly, Shakespeare's plays were performed indoors. We have lost this. And it's important to understand that Shakespeare's plays were most likely performed at the universities. Several of his plays, when they are published in small volumes, say on their title page that they were played before court, they were played before royalty, or they were played at the universities of Oxford and Cambridge. Now, when James I became King of England, and came to the throne after the death of Queen Elizabeth in 1603, James I was much more interested in indoor theater. 
And he was much more interested in um, creating theatrical spaces in which he could be the spectator. And so it's very important to understand, for example, a play like The Tempest, let's say. A play like The Tempest was probably played both indoors and outdoors. So that changes our sense of what it means to be a part of a theatrical tradition which trades on, for example, special effects or the idea of storm. Uh, What would it have meant to have gone to the theater in Shakespeare's time? Um, We go to the theater today, and I hope live theater fully comes back after the pandemic and after lockdown, because there's nothing like going to a play. There's nothing like the excitement of live theater. Exactly. Right. But one of the things that we don't do is we don't talk. We don't obviously take notes. We don't participate in the theater in the theater as it's as it's being acted. I mean, if you did, you'd be thrown out. Shakespeare's audiences are noisy, and the scholar Tiffany Stern and others have shown us that Shakespeare's audiences took notes. We have evidence of what they went to the theater and what they remembered, what they wrote down, the passages they wrote down, or the bits and pieces of what they wrote down. We have the diary of the courtier Simon Foreman, who attended at least four plays and left us details about what he saw. Now, granted, his details are kind of garbled and weird, but there's evidence. So what I want to stress is that playgoing is a meaningful activity in Renaissance England, that playgoing is something that people did, many different social classes, and that very often playgoing was far more participatory than it is today. That the indoor theater and the outdoor theater, that, for example, the theater in Whitehall, an indoor theater, or the Globe Theater, an open-air outdoor theater, that these create different kinds of spaces in which the imagination can work. And so when we talk about popularity, yes, Shakespeare's Shakespeare's plays were immensely popular. And we have right. great evidence. We have a wonderful uh, 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 bit of marginalia. We're talking about uh, Hamlet as a play for the wiser sort. What does that even mean? You know, But this wonderful sense that people or, or, you know, the fact that Romeo and Juliet was in its own time, an extremely well-known play. So the idea that Shakespeare is well-known in his own time, unlike his contemporary Ben Jonson, Shakespeare is not a self-promoter. Ben Jonson is in the Ben Jonson business. He <laughs> oversees the publication of his works. He's constantly writing for the court. He's constantly seeking patronage. He's constantly judging and characterizing others. Compared with Ben Jonson, Shakespeare seems more solitary or more removed, um, but was probably in his own time no less no less famous. Stephen Greenblatt, by the way, is has famously said, you know, that when Shakespeare died, nobody seemed to have known. You know, so, so what do we mean by reputation again? You know, this, this sense that in his own time, the plays are widely known, the first folio can be published, 
he has more than a posthumous reputation. It is so interesting and enlightening that you brought up the aspect that theater goers took notes of everything they saw and heard, just like a modern day de facto iPhone, which is often used to capture and record a scene in your life that you cherish. Right? Going to the theater、mm-hmm. was participatory. You see,、right. we go to the theater today in a very passive way, and、right. I think it would be wonderful to recapture the excitement. <laughs> of what it would mean to go to a theater in which the the actors, you know, very often played. We hope you have enjoyed the episode so far. If you want to hear the entire episode, you can subscribe at theglobalnovel dot com slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening.